Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Marketing Times Analytics Podcast. I'm Alex Safranis, your host, and today we have a very special guest with us, Mr. Ari Shankin, who is the Vice President of Performance Marketing and Analytics at IBM. Ari, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, everyone. Yeah, Ari Shankin, and as uh, he described, performance marketing leader worldwide for IBM, which what that really means, if you break it down, is in performance marketing, we're responsible for mar- marketing technology. So how do you collect all the information and how do you make great user experiences? On top of that, we're responsible for the data and what do you do and how do you organize data so it makes sense. On top of that, we apply data science and analytics and on top of that, we have a lot of the go-to-market capabilities like media and campaign and email and marketing automation and more. So that whole stack of how you create value from the MarTech all the way to the user experience. That is so interesting. Yeah. It's it's there. It's incredible to think about how many different teams there are in marketing analytics and the, the scope of all of the different analytical capabilities we have. So um, that's that's really cool. And hopefully we can get into some of that. Um, my first question is about the skills for an analytics professional. It's changing, the technology is changing. Um, so the question is, how will the skills of an analytics professional change five to 10 years from now? That is a really interesting question. I ground myself in this sense, which is, think about a kite, a kite that has a string that you hold in your hand and then the kite itself flies up into the air. So the part that's flying through the air and it's always going higher and higher, that's the technology, that's the set of tools, that's the data, that's the machine learning. That's everything from the ability to collect so much more information about users and understand them so much better and work with big data sets that only AI could manage and new experiences because they're new platforms and who knew TikTok was gonna be a thing five years ago. And you know that's all going to change, and the world just accelerates and more, and it's higher and higher, and that kite is soaring. And on the other end of the string is a human being who's holding that. And that part of marketing, that part of analytics doesn't change, because analytics has always been about asking good questions. And in marketing analytics, for instance, you go back 100 years, and the questions of, do you know your audience, and do you have a message that drives them to take an action. That hasn't changed in 100 years. That's not going to change 100 years in the future. But the tools and the technologies we apply to be better at that are always going to evolve. And so think about the future practitioner as someone who can hold that string. They can be grounded on the earth, on the foundational stuff of knowing their customers and their messaging, and they're comfortable with that always accelerating technology and data and tool set. Definitely. That that really resonates with me. Um, Follow-up question. What do you think um, the skills will be 50 to 100 years from now? That is even harder, but I would extend the metaphor, I suppose. I don't see any future in which the foundation is not going to be, do you understand the human being on the other end of this message? And can you influence them? in a positive, ethical way to change their behavior. So go back to a Roman forum. Whether you called it marketing or not, was it really that different, how you try to influence people's behavior? I don't think it is. And human behavior, I don't think will ever change in that way, 100 years in the future. But it's almost impossible to picture what the capabilities and the technology and the experiences will be. 
So I wouldn't even try to project to that other than to stay, say, analytics professionals, marketing professionals, whatever actual functional, you can be a finance professional. Staying attuned to the tools and the data and the technology of your profession so that you can apply them to those fundamentals of human behavior, that's the formula that's going to be here 100 years from now. Yeah, I remember a quote that if you want to learn psychology, study marketing, and if you want to learn marketing, study psychology. So there, there is definitely a relationship there um, that's everlasting. That's interesting. Well, I come from a, a family where my father was a psychiatrist and my mother was a psychotherapist. So <laughs> maybe it was inevitable that I'm here doing marketing analytics. Yeah, that, that is an interesting <laughs> correlation. It's revealing, right? People say, now I understand you a little bit better. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So uh, this next question is about, um, you know, more of a general look at marketing. I'm I'm curious, besides IBM, which company's marketing do you admire most and why? There are competitors and suppliers to IBM that I get to spend a lot of time with and I get to see what they do. And so I admire their work and am envious sometimes of their work and I aspire to their work. And you think about Microsoft and the success they've had and certainly the clarity of their portfolio and really being able to serve their audience more so than their, say, their advertising. But companies like Adobe, that is a a big partner to IBM these days, and we're doing lots of work with them, and I've had a chance to meet their CMO and see the way they've organized their structure. For them, I'm quite envious and aspire to have the digital speed and clarity which they work with. But on the other extreme, what I find most interesting about marketer, I'm not a marketer by training. I don't think of myself as a marketer. I'm an analytics professional who is applying it to marketing right now. So I have this fascination with marketing where you are marketing products that don't actually make that much sense. In other words, I think Adobe is a really good product. And the marketing had to make me aware and had to make it easy to do the trial. But on some sense, yeah, I can be envious of the process and the clarity. But is that the brilliant marketing? No. The most brilliant marketing, I think, is the product you have no need for. I think of when I grew up, the show Marshalls that were on television and Ron Popel. I don't know if that registers for you or people of your age. <laughs> um, but a, a guy who would buy half-hour time slots and tell you why you needed the pocket fisherman. It's a fishing rod you could hold in your jacket pocket in case you were just driving by a <laughs> pond and said, what do I feel like doing fishing? I'll whip out my pocket fisherman or the chicken rotisserie, because who would really want a chicken at home that wasn't on a rotisserie? And just an endless set (laughs) of products that without the marketing, without explaining the value, they wouldn't exist. I actually find that marketing, to your point on psychology, to be the most fascinating kind. And people who can make you recognize a need or hope or fulfill some on that need, that to me is the most interesting kind of marketing, not necessarily the most relevant for what I do day to day but I have great admiration and interest. I totally get what you mean. It's, it's so, it's like the pet rock sort of thing that you take, you take any random item and and you just blow it up um, with really good marketing. It's, It's really interesting to see that happen. By the way, for you or anyone who wants to check out Ron Popel, his greatest product of all time was hairspray, but not 
what you think of when you think about hairspray, which would be spray that holds your hair in shape. He had spray for people who were balding that sprayed hair onto your head or something that was supposed to look like hair. And it, it, it was the most ridiculous product. I'm sure in the real world it couldn't possibly have worked, but it looked so <laughs> convincing that you could have a full head of hair by just getting a can and spraying your head. <laughs> Check yeah, that, it out. That's marketing. That is mar- that's really good marketing. Um, all right. Uh, question about m- metrics. What kind of analytics metrics do you think could exist one day that aren't yet possible to track? There's a, a theme that I've been pursuing over the last couple of years. We're not there yet. But when I started to see the capability of tools like Watson that could do apply AI and machine learning in a visual context. My first set of thoughts was, wow, could you start applying that to the creative side of advertising? And for instance, the images that go into a banner ad. That to me is a fascinating question of how far could you push some of the new AI capabilities into understanding images and colors and, of course, natural language. Could you run a set of ads through a Watson-like capability and get all kinds of suggestions to, actually, instead of using the family, I would use the dog instead of color blue, red, We've run some interesting pilots on it. It's too early to say we have something at scale. And the agency has shown me some thoughts that they've had on it. But you can see a future in which, without diminishing the creative process, you still need brilliant creative people to do the work. Could you imagine a whole set of data that speaks to the creative effectiveness? I think that's coming. And I think it's coming probably sooner rather than later. Absolutely. That actually sparked this uh, comparison with TikTok and the way that they automatically pick videos that you are you, know, you will like. And I remember this guy had looked into the algorithm and figured out one a little way how to hack it. And he found that the most the the videos that were shown the most on the For You page, which is the page where they select videos for you, um, they found that the videos that had a famous soundtrack added, that being a sound that was very popular on the platform, that the algorithm would favor that and it would share it. And because they probably on the back end figured out that these are uh, trusted sounds, like this is this is a video that's probably following a format of some kind, this is probably better content, um, so that idea of selecting content in an automatic way is very much a centerpiece for for this extremely popular platform. I think that that could definitely be something that that marketing as an industry could adopt. Yeah, now imagine extending that one further so it's not hacking into, say, the algorithm, but it's that same hacking into the human being on the other side, which is what image is going to resonate with this person? And by the way, does it matter what time of the day it is? And does it matter what job role they're in? There is work that we played with with Watson, which has a capability called Tone Analyzer, 
which is imagine if you start to think about marketing, not just the words and the images, but what have you thought about the emotional tenor? What's the right emotional tenor for this person in this moment? And maybe you can intuit some of that from their behavior digitally. It's amazing what you could do. Now, that all comes back to building not just systems, but great content and great experiences back to the core of what fundamentals of marketing have to be there as well. But that kind of analytics capability, you can see the beginning of it into your first question of the day, five, 10 years from now, that's going to be fairly normal. Absolutely. So you've grown, it's no secret that you've grown a marketing organization from a small team to over a hundred people. What was the most existential crisis you faced? Interesting. I don't know that I ever faced an existential question. The team, I was checking this morning, the, the team's almost 250 people now doing this kind of core work. And then, of course, we're responsible for thousands of people because leading performance marketing, it's not just the people that directly report into my organization, but it's all the performance marketers around the world. The the challenge has always been the same for me. And it's always, the biggest challenge is always around the people and the organization. And as you grow to bigger and bigger organizations, the importance of having clarity of vision and simplicity of vision, it's so important, especially in a complex company like IBM, and it's true for other big companies. There are a thousand things that person sitting in Korea could be doing today. You're not sitting with them. How are you going to influence them to make the choice that's right for the business and for your priorities? And that comes from the clarity of vision, the simplicity of the vision, and of course, the conviction that you're able to translate to them, that I can influence them, whether they report to me or not, but they feel enthusiasm and belief. And so they go and act on that. And when you're starting your career, especially maybe you're out of college and you're doing the kind of analytics work we do, your first job is to be great at analytics. And then you start leading a team and your second job is helping other people be great at analytics. And then you start running an organization and maybe it's 30 or 40 or 50 people and you realize your job is about balancing that organization. Then you get to the numbers that are measured in hundreds or thousands and you recognize it can no longer be about a one-to-one relationship. It has to be about the organization and the way you build belief and the way you motivate people and how you influence even when you don't have direct authority. I'm still learning that every day. And especially in a company our size, it's much easier for me to effective with the 200 some odd people who directly report to me. I can affect your paycheck. But what do you do when you don't have that direct influence? How do you reach across geographies and time zones? How do you reach across organizations and inspire someone to make a better choice today? I think inspire is the right word. I, I I personally see that from from your leadership is that you do take an inspirational approach. After you know, I I get fired up after the all hands calls, and um, I, and I can tell other people are too. And that's definitely a very potent way to move a lot of people in the same direction. It's like a short mantra almost that everybody can follow. The most impactful advice that I got on this topic was from Ginny Rometty, who up until recently, IBM CEO. And when 
she before she was the CEO, she was running sales for IBM. I, I worked for her in a strategy role, and she made a comment one day: "The great strategy can't just be about being smart. In fact, the best strategy isn't necessarily the smartest strategy. It's the strategy that people understand the easiest and can act on." Mm-hmm. And that was a good resetting for me. That as much as I want to be smart and as much as I want to be known for having the best idea, think about big, complex ideas and hard to catch on, right? Think about it yeah. even in politics. It's that simple idea, sometimes in a really negative way, but that expression that people just catch on to. But when you do that in a positive, uplifting way, that simplicity of how you take your message, which may have lots of complexity behind it, and you just translate it to someone else in a way that I get that, I've internalized that, I can act on that, whether we're sitting next to each other or not. It's always uh, work in progress. But great advice from Jenny that I get to share with you. Thank you. So the, the next question it regards more of an existential threat to marketing in general. I'm curious what what you think about this. Do you think that increasing privacy regulations will eventually make it impossible to achieve the same level of targeting we have today? No, I don't believe that at all. And I've been very vocal on this. And I sit on some groups like the Association of National Advertisers, where there's lots of concern about that. I'll tell you my perspective is in the spirit of starting with fundamentals, there, if you know your audience and you have a relevant message for them and you have value to share with them, that's good marketing. And that's always interesting to people, valuable to people. They will give you permission for that. I don't worry at all about getting permission from users. Marketing that didn't have permission, whether it was implicit or now more explicit, how was that ever good marketing? How was that ever effective? The goal was marketing was not to trick someone into making a decision they wanted to make. It was trying to build a relationship at its best. So just to give you one practical example, this was a real concern in IBM when GDPR came out and the European team saying, what is going to happen to our demand? Well, guess what? It went up. Not incidentally, it went up because... GDPR forced us, I think, to step back and look at our experience and say, is there enough value here that the user is going to say yes to us, that the user is going to give up permission, that there's a value exchange that makes sense to them? And when you put that standard on yourself, you recognize we as marketers can do more, we owe more. And the truth is, in survey after survey and experiment after experiment, just like we found in this case, Consumers are willing to share that information with you if you're ethical and responsible and treat as a real value exchange. Definitely. That makes so much sense. It's almost like the industry grew so quickly, people were probably taking advantage of all the loose privacy restrictions and, you know, bombing people with spam. And I think that the, the you know, the GDPR uh, like regulation took that part of marketing and sort of is cleansing it. The the consent driven marketing 
has and probably will always be here. I, I think that that's, that's wise and, and probably true. Yeah, and by the way, we're all consumers too. So who wants to be on the other side of bad marketing that has no permission? It's a real opportunity for the industry to get itself in a better position by doing the right thing and thinking about privacy and the ethics of privacy. But there'll always be a role for effective marketing when it has value. Yeah. Um, I'm really curious what you think about this next question. Do you think there is a human element to marketing analytics, just like in advertising, the, I mean, the art part of advertising, and which one would you, sorry, which one would be easier to program a robot to do? I think of marketing analytics as being entirely based on the human element. So, if there's one skill I look for, say, for people coming out of, out of graduate school, it's not actually analytics capabilities because you can teach people how to do analytics. You can teach them the stats and the math and the tools. So they have to be interested, but you can teach that. It is very hard. I have met wonderful people who are in the data science space who have no relation to other human beings. And the problem with that, if you want to be an applied discipline, now there, there are roles for people that in IBM research, for example, go and build models. But if your goal is to make a difference in the world, if you want to apply analytics to marketing or you want to apply it to sports or you want to apply it to public policy, there's another human being on the other end of that analytics. It doesn't matter if it's a marketer or the end consumer or a voter, there's a human being. The job is to move the human being. It wasn't to do the analytics. And there was a wonderful line in a biography of George Washington, I sometimes quote, where the author said, George Washington as a communicator came to realize that people have to feel something before they can see something. And if you think about that in the context, you are never going to really convince people by putting a lot of numbers in front of them. They can see it, but you're not going to move them. So really effective marketing analytics in a counterintuitive way actually starts with a really human basis. It's about making people feel something. You recognize that math and stats and analytics is just another language. And when we use that language to tell stories and to reach individuals and treat them as human beings, we can be incredibly effective in applied analytics. So that's my view of it. Uh, as I said before, the robots will never, I shouldn't say never, in my lifetime, I don't think you're going to see generalized AI. IBM doesn't think you're going to see generalized AI that can do the work of a human being at the kind of scale and the creative of advertising. However, are you going to be able to build capabilities that can understand advertising, can cooperate with a human being on the advertising? Yeah, absolutely. Can you build more and more capabilities that can do analytics? Absolutely. So then what does the core skill become? Let's say there's a robot that we can build that can actually do a lot of the stats work. Does that mean, sorry, analytics professionals, you have a job? Not at all, because of what I just said before, which is someone's got to apply that. Someone's got to take that insight and convince another human being, another marketer, another constituent. They've got to make them feel something that makes them act. And that's going to be the role of the analytics professional. And by the way, doesn't that make it more and more interesting to be in the profession? Absolutely. I, I think that's spot on. 
Thank you, Ari. Um, the last question I I thought it would be good to wrap up on. What's your most memorable piece of advertising? Hmm. It's funny. There are ads from my childhood and some predate my childhood. I, I had the tune to good and, good and plenty. This is black and white. This is long before I'm not that old. Good and Plenty said this funny animated ad that I was trying to describe to my 13-year-old daughter. And we had to look it up in YouTube. Um, so those kind of jingles. But the piece of advertising, that the thing that got me actually into marketing, before I was in marketing and I had a chance to work on what became the Smarter Planet advertising, which was a really exciting piece of work that started with actually with a strategy question. It didn't start with a marketing question. It was in a world in which the environment matters. The world in which human beings are recognizing their responsibility. How does IBM apply what it does in a way that matters for the world? One of our values is innovation that matters for the world. And then you say, well, what does that mean then in a world that has all these challenges? And to see that over time translate into this beautiful line and this beautiful set of advertisements that spoke to a smarter planet. That's the idea of intelligence, the idea of innovation applied to problems that matter in the world. That was part of the inspiration to say, maybe I could join marketing. I don't see myself as a marketer. I never thought I'd be in a marketing role. But seeing that unfold and seeing how impactful it was actually in the advertising world and how much it actually shaped the conversation that other companies were having probably the most impactful piece of advertising I've ever been close to. Thank you, Ari. That, that, that's incredible to hear about. Um, this has been such an interesting conversation. I, I want to thank you again for taking the time to chat. Yeah. Thanks Alex for setting it up. Sure. All right. Thank you everyone for listening. We'll see you next week.